0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Anne Zacharias Walsh, author of the recent book, Our Unions, Ourselves, The Rise of Feminist Labor Unions in Japan. Anne is an activist and writer who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. She has worked with progressive labor unions and social justice organizations and campaigns throughout the United States and Japan for more than 25 years. We spoke to Anne about how she became interested in studying Japanese women's unions, her successful work establishing the U.S.-Japan Working Women's Project with Women's Union Tokyo, and her inspiring stories of cross-cultural activist collaborations between American and Japanese women. Hello, Anne. Welcome to the podcast
1: hi thank you very much for having me
0: well it is a pleasure uh, to be talking with you and we wanted to just let the the listeners know uh that if they hear um dump trucks or excavators in the background that's exactly what they are They're, we are uh, sage house where cornell university press uh is based um is under construction and so it's 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 a huge construction site and we've labeled it the big dig uh, kind of after the, the Boston Big Dig. The Big Dig is something that we're, we're taking literally and figuratively um, in that we want to, uh, during this time, explore some of our older titles, titles from the past and not-so-distant past. And that is a, a perfect segue to our author Ann Zacharias Walsh, who's written the book Our Unions, Ourselves, The Rise of Feminist Labor Unions in Japan it is a not-so-distant past book. It just came out in 2016, uh, but we wanted to talk about it. So, and we, we had a, a, our first question was, uh, as a long-time labor activist in the United States, tell us a little bit about the story of how you got interested in working with and studying Japanese women's unions.
1: Yeah, so it was one of those things that just sort of came up in a, a very idiosyncratic way. I had gone to japan several times in the late 90s as a tourist and i loved so many things about japan that i started toying with the idea of moving there for a while really just for the adventure of it um and at first i wasn't serious about that because i write about labor issues and i didn't think of japan as a hotbed of labor activity although you know it turned out i was very (laughs) wrong about that Um, but when i was getting ready to go back to tokyo just for a visit a friend of mine from the um, UE asked me if I'd be willing to put some pressure on the Japanese parent company of an American subsidiary that was dragging its feet at the bargaining table. So of course I agreed. And in the process of doing that solidarity work, I found out very quickly that there were actually a lot of very exciting things going on in the Japanese labor movement. Most of it was focused on creating new kinds of workers' organizations for employees who were not eligible for membership in their traditional enterprise unions. And the reason that was happening was that um, after the economic collapse in the early 1990s, a lot of people lost their jobs and were pushed into part-time work or um, positions that were no longer eligible for union membership. So these marginalized workers started putting together Their own kind of new forms of organization they created part time workers unions and unemployed workers unions. There was even a union for displaced managers. Um, But the organization that everyone seemed to be talking about were these new labor unions for women only And I had never specifically focused on women's issues on women's labor issues. I'd always been interested in, you know, like labor qua labor but it seemed like these women's unions were where the most exciting and radical work was happening so i really you know i wanted to check that out so i started hanging around with the women's union tokyo which was is probably the best known of the women's unions and i started getting a sense of you know what the union does and how it operates and the kinds of grievances they tend to see and all of that was really exciting to me but what actually prompted me to you know, pack my bags and sign up for language lessons and move to Japan was that I could see that the Women's Union Tokyo was in the midst of a very serious organizational crisis. And based on my background and the contacts I had in the labor world in the U.S., I felt like I might be in a position to help.
0: That's fascinating. So, so you, you had mentioned the Women's Union Tokyo and they were, they were within some type of crisis. So you established the U.S.-Japan Working Women's Project. Tell us about this project and the impact that it had.
1: Let me start by telling you a little bit of background about what that crisis was. Um, It occurs to me that would kind of make it all make more sense.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So the Women's Union Tokyo was created in 1999. And literally before they officially opened their doors, their phone was ringing off the hook with women calling in and asking for help with problems they were having on the job. But the union only had a few trained activists to handle this constant deluge of calls. And that meant they didn't have any time or resources to train new members to help, you know, help with these, this crushing caseload. So in practice, what was happening was that with every victory they had at the bargaining table, and in fact, they had quite a few, Um, That would bring in new waves of women who wanted help, but no new trained activists to help with workloads. And the few trained activists that they had were literally getting sick from overwork and from burnout. So what it seemed like to me was that in a very real way, the union was in danger of getting crushed by the weight of its own success. And once i got talking to the union leaders and so forth about that i found out that this was actually happening to these women's unions all over the country they were all these small little groups of women who had kind of created things on their own and they were really struggling to keep up with uh, pace but they had no way of connecting with each other no way of growing their resources and things like that and the union leaders actually told me that there was really no one in Japan they could turn to for help at this point. They always said that anyone who was willing to help them was already helping them. So they were feeling very hopeless about their situation. But at that point, I've been working with unions in the US for more than a decade. So at that point, I was pretty sure um, that I knew a lot of American women unionists who'd be happy to share ideas and resources to help the Japanese women build capacity in exchange for the chance to learn about their union reform efforts. Um, Because at that time we were also in the US looking at a lot of ways to reform unions to make them more inclusive, more democratic, things like that. Anyway, so that was the impetus for the US-Japan project. And the project itself was this multi-year grassroots exchange project where we brought together US and Japanese activists and scholars and labor educators and union members, first, to educate each other about our organizations, how they operate, um, the problems that they're facing in practice, and then second, to engage in deep dialogue about what we as a group might be able to do to help Japanese women's unions build their organizational capacity, and also to help them cultivate solidarity ties across those organizations. Because um, like I said, up until then, they were all working in isolation and they w- had no way of being connected. And then the third leg of the project was, you know, once we had done those two pieces, to find some concrete way of helping women's unions address their current crisis. So since they were telling us that their biggest problem was their inability to train and retain members who could help with the ever-growing caseloads, we kind of collectively decided that the best thing we could do um, would be to help them develop their own labor education resources that were tailored to the Japanese context. Now the tricky part of that was that labor education and especially the kind that we do in the U S that focuses on democratic participatory education methods. um, This concept was completely unknown in Japan. So the women had no concept at all of what such a thing might look like. So what we did was we had various labor educators custom design a series of training the trainer workshops to model how we in the US teach, for example, organizing skills, communication skills, leadership skills, those kind of basic things. And then after the Japanese women had experienced all of these different workshops, they then spent a year Repeatedly meeting to develop their own um, resources once they got the idea and then pilot them and get them up and running.
0: That's amazing. I would I mean, imagine <laughs> there's there's so much, I mean, there's a lot at play here. But I would imagine that that cross-cultural communication and miscommunication, there's a lot of difficulties there, but also some incredible opportunities. What what did you find through this project was you know, your greatest success and what was something that was elusive?
1: Yeah. So, (laughs) I mean, the outcomes of the project overall were so far beyond anything we imagined when we started this. Um, You know, once the Japanese women got the idea of what participatory education meant, their creativity was just unlocked and they went all out coming up with activities and workshops that really resonated with Japanese women and Japanese workers across the board. And then, you know, once they had kind of piloted these workshops for the Americans and we got our feedback and so on, they started taking their act on the road. And they were offering training workshops all over the country, not just for women's unions, but for workers' organizations and activist organizations of all kinds. They were even invited to give a training workshop at Rango which is sort of the Japanese equivalent of AFL-CIO. And that was, that was huge because, you know, Rengo was kind of the image of what they'd always been left out of. And it's this giant organization. And here Rengo was coming to them to say, can we get some of that action? Nice. So that was huge. But probably more importantly, I think in the long run, was that the US Japan project provided the opportunity for those women's unions to get to know each other and form long lasting solidarity ties. So that by the end of the project, the Japanese women had launched a national feminist labor movement in which, um, so they had this array, they still do, this array of women's groups that are linked through an umbrella organization they created called Action Center for Working Women. And they also created the working women's educational Network through which they now share all the educational materials that they continue to develop. That was like huge, right? It has really significantly changed. That project significantly changed the activist landscape in Japan and the women there continue to build on it. I try and go back at least once a year and check up and see what's happening. And every time I go, it's new and exciting and, And that is not to say that they don't have a lot of failures and it's not to say it's actually changing the Japanese labor market in enormous ways. But given what they're up against, they are surviving and fighting back and making real significant change for, you know, live actual women. Um, That's
0: that's amazing. It must've been so inspiring to be part of this whole, this whole movement and, and getting this thing off the ground and seeing the impact that it has. It and was it-
1: incredible, and, but it was also really difficult because um, at the end, you know, my job as a person who was trying to bring together these two sides to kind of help each other and then, you know, kind of prepare the Japanese women's unions to launch more effectively on their own, you know there was a point at which okay it's now time for me to leave. Yeah this is this is the Japanese women's thing right I'm just facilitating a little thing here but it's all about them and where they're gonna take it. And so I remember at the end of our last of the last of the international meetings, you know that was the official end of the project and we're all on a bus going home and all the Japanese women are talking so excitedly about what they're going to do in the coming year with all they've learned, and da 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 da. And I'm sitting there. I could feel myself like you know disappearing into gray because I'm I'm now the player who's been traded, but hasn't left the team yet. <laughs> and so it was you know like I was tearing up because it was time for me to bow out and let it go on, and I was really going to miss being a part of that
0: wow wow but it's great that you're still as you said you try to make it back to japan every year and you're still in touch with uh the folks that are that are doing the heavy lifting of this work Uh, oh yeah
1: oh can i tell you one really cool thing that happened yeah yeah okay so um a few years ago it was not long after the first women's march in 2017 um when all the women were wearing pussy hats Mm -hmm. I went to Japan, um, you know, to check it out and visit my friends. And I, of course, took my pussy hat with me. And so when I was meeting with the women at Women's Union Tokyo, um, I was showing it to them and and we got talking about it and they were like, the pun doesn't really work in Japanese. So they didn't really get the full set of meanings. Mm -hmm. But they just thought it was like a kind of cute fashion that all the protesters were wearing. So, I had to scrape up my, like, the very bottom of the barrel of my Japanese language skills to try and get across, you know, the full set of meanings for this symbol. And the Japanese women loved it. They thought it was amazing. And so, in real time, while we're sitting there, they started, you know, Googling to get to those websites that had, like, the patterns that you could use to create. Your own, you know, to to knit your own pussy hats. Yeah. Yeah. So that was happening in the moment. And then a couple weeks later, when I was back in Atlanta, I got a message from the, you know, from the center that we're all part of saying that this idea about the pussy hats and what they mean and all that had spread throughout the whole system throughout the whole country all these different women's groups and they were now having workshops all over the country for women to come and knit pussy hats together it's it so cool
0: <laughs> wow you delivered the message right
1: exactly.
0: that is so cool that's so cool yeah. so 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 in that kind of same vein what has or, or you know the reverse so there's this cross com- cultural communication and teaching of of american labor know-how to the japanese was there what did you see on the reverse what, was there anything from the cross-cultural communication that the, the american activists took and ran with
1: oh yeah i mean you know what we learned and what they learned they, they were very different things right so what i think one thing we the americans took away first of all was uh this incredible sense of excitement and i don't know wonder and it, you know for a lot of us who had been in the labor movement for a long time you know it's easy to get burned out it's easy to get cynical and it's easy to get stuck in ruts of you know past practice but the couple of years that we spent interacting with the Japanese women and seeing what they were doing, um, you know, the odds they were facing, but the kind of enthusiasm that they brought to the table. It, you know, it was really like extremely important to us and really I think revved us all up quite a lot. Um, And I think that's kind of connected to what I, I think of as one of the main lessons of the project for our side. And this is not really just for working women, but really for social justice seekers of all sorts, is that when you're facing oppression on all sides, which we increasingly are here in the U.S., we really have to be creative about how we address it. It's like the Japanese women saw that their unions were not addressing their problems. And in many cases, were actually exacerbating them. And when their attempts to reform those unions from inside failed, they figured out A different way of organizing that was radically new. They started looking at the situations that women were facing in practice and they identified the problems they wanted to address and then from there they developed a new form of organizing collaboratively and indigenously to fit those workers circumstances. And that's something that a lot of folks are kind of afraid to do. I mean We've seen that kind of creativity in, in the formation of things like worker centers for working people whose you know, realities don't really line up necessarily with an industrial or a craft union. But it's the kind of thing that we really need to, we need to have a lot more of that, I think, to um, bring the labor movement basically into the 21st century and to really respond to a lot of what's going on. And I think the second major takeaway for American audiences was what we learned about the um, building and maintaining these complicated cross-border intersectional coalitions, which I think I know I'm not alone in thinking that those are absolutely essential today, that we're not going to have a lot of victories like the sit-down strikes in the 30s, right? working situations have changed enough that we need a really different approach and we are starting to put together these, you know, much more complicated coalitions, like, um, for example, in the Fight for 15 movement, you're bringing together McDonald's workers and college professors and Black Lives Matter folks and, you know, this kind of strange bedfellow coalitions. um, And we really need to know how to do that because it's very easy for those things to fall apart. And I think we've learned a lot of that from the US-Japan project. I'd like to say those lessons came from the like brilliant decisions we made in designing the project, but more often than not, they came from mistakes we made or oversights that came back to bite us and that we had to deal with on the fly.
0: Interesting. I mean that makes sense. That the, but the the exciting thing is that it's um, you took action and you did something new. And when you do something new, it's not always gonna work the first time. But if you just oh, keep yeah. taking it when <laughs> the second or third time. <laughs> but, but by the fact the fact of the matter is that you guys were trying new things, doing new things, um, that creates new opportunities, that creates new ways of of looking at the problem. And that's really exciting. And that's yeah. That's where labor needs to go. I mean, I don't have to tell you that you're, you're like <laughs> a serious labor activist. So um, that's exciting to hear this intersection, these intersectional coalitions and this, you know, almost globalized union effort um, is what we need to exactly. address the issues of globalization.
1: Can I tell you one of our most ghastly mistakes? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So this is, it's actually a very complicated story and I spend a, a whole chapter talking about it in the book, but it's, it was so glaring and so important. And you know, what I found talking to people about the book is people really love reading about mistakes. So, um, so I'll share this one because it—it's big. It, it, it really focused on misunderstandings around organizing. So from the very beginning of the project, the Japanese women said they wanted us to teach them how to organize new members, right? That was our starting point. They wanted to learn our actual techniques. But we were fully two years into the project when at a very crucial moment, we discovered that what we meant by organizing and what they meant by organizing were two completely different things. And that in fact, what we meant by organizing was deeply offensive to them. So this came out in the middle of a workshop on organizing, right, the whole two days is gonna be spent on this and all the materials are already translated into Japanese, like it's not something that you can quickly turn on a dime. Um, But we had to find a way to pivot and respond to that, you know, um, sort of emerging fault line or that whole trip to Japan, that whole two-day workshop was going to fall apart. but And we were able to do that, but I think that was largely because of the way we had structured the project. That we had um, spent that whole first year getting to know each other and cultivating the kind of trust and commitment that we needed to work through this, you know, sort of serious crisis among the members. And so what I mean by how we structured it for what one example is that we had set it up as a multi year collaboration, which meant we had spent all that time getting to know each other, educating each other about our on the ground realities. And in that period, we really sort of built up not just our understanding of each other, but a kind of trust and commitment to the project to kind of that became really important for getting us through the stickiest parts. Um, But and it also meant we had several meetings over several years, which gave us the opportunity to, you know, talk through differences that emerge, clarify things that allowed us to like grow in our thinking in ways that you really can't do if people aren't coming together for ongoing dialogue. And then I think the other crucial part of that was that our focus of the collaboration was on actually creating something, you know. I think it's easy for dialogue to break down or or sort of veer off into something safer if you encounter a problem or get sticky. But we were committed to making these educational materials. And if we wanted that to happen, we had to find ways to work through our differences. And it turned out that that's where the real learning and the real discovery took place. So in this case, when we had to step back and try to understand why on earth the Japanese women were so deeply upset by our style of organizing, Um, we came to a whole new understanding and appreciation of what their entire project was about because it was through that conflict that we discovered that the Japanese women are not just trying to claim their rights as workers. They're actually still trying to claim their human rights to be a self, to be an equal independent person who has a right to their own life. And that really shocked us because we didn't realize that they were still fighting the fight on that level.
0: Wow, wow. Yeah, and
1: only because we had gotten into the nitty gritty of developing the teaching materials on organizing that we were ever in a position to discover that what they meant by this word and what we meant by this word were totally different concepts at that time totally incompatible we could have if it was all just discussion we would have gone through the whole project and ne- and never realized we were talking across purposes
0: wow yeah
1: <laughs> it was so cool
0: that is amazing well i mean it's the classic taking making uh lemonade out of a lemon so that you had the suddenly this huge crisis but then you're able to because of the two years of background uh of conversation that you had you're able to lift above that and, and work something out
1: Yeah. And it wasn't easy and it was, wasn't peaceful. There was like, you know, there was a lot of emotion over it and a true, another truly hilarious moment of the project was at the end of that workshop. Um, when we came together for a plenary session and a representative from the organizing group was giving a review of the workshop, she's starting to explain this whole tumultuous thing that happened and, She's sort of winding up to her, you know, Dana denou- Ma, and an earthquake hits.
0: No so the, way. The whole
1: room starts, yeah, seriously. The whole room starts shaking. It was really funny because my husband was actually t- in attendance. He was one of the few men in the room. And when the earthquake hits, he was the only one who just dived under the table. The rest of us, like some people, were just not even noticing. I'm looking at my watch saying, we better not get off schedule. You know, because <laughs> I'm running the thing, and some women are like running and opening windows and stuff. But he was the only one who like duck and cover, right?
0: Wow, wow! But
1: everybody died laughing because, it, and then she just picked up without missing a beat and said, "Oh yes," referring to the facilitator. She rocked our world. She shook our brains. You know, so she just started ripping off a bunch of earthquake puns.
0: That's amazing symbolism, right there. <laughs> exactly. Great. That's great. Wow, wow. Well, it's so inspiring to hear these stories and and that this this project that you've been working on for years is still going on, still still evolving. Obviously, there's plenty of work to do in this country, too. Um, But it's inspiring to hear that people are, um, in these darker times, uh, are still working and fighting to uh, make things better for everyone, really. Um, Yeah. That's really inspiring
1: that was really the whole reason I wrote the book was because I wanted, you know, like the first part of the being there and being in that part of the project was about let's do what we can for the Japanese labor movement. But then I wanted to bring it back home and say, you know, we've got a lot of stuff we need here. And here's all this inspiration and ideas and energy. And um, that's, that's the whole point of the book is to try and, and bring that to American audiences to really rub us up on this side.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, for those listening, you can get more uh, of these stories and analysis, an in-depth look at the the United States and Japanese union collaboration, successfully tackling uh, some major issues in both Japan and the U.S. Our Unions Ourselves is the name of the, the book, The Rise of Feminist Labor Unions in Japan. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
0: It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye. That was Anne Zacharias Walsh, author of the recent book, Our Unions, Ourselves, The Rise of Feminist Labor Unions in Japan. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on her new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.